0: This is PolyOptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar.
1: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. PolyOptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it is only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. Today we explore the buzz around the royal wedding. The impending nuptials between Prince William and Kate Middleton. Our very own Josh King is on the scene in London. Then we'll go behind the scenes with comedy writer and political consultant Mark Katz. The man Bill Clinton turned to for all of his best material. Do not miss this interview. Mark has better stories than anyone I know. Plus our conversation with former White House Deputy Social Secretary Dory Thornton. We'll get her take on the newly appointed White House Social Secretary and what it means that Michelle Obama has chosen an openly gay man to fill this most important White House role. I am joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, and it is great to have you here.
2: Great to be here with you, Adam, today. And actually, for me, here is 3,000 miles away in London, England.
1: You have taken up residence in the United Kingdom. I know you're there for work, but uh, one of the things that I was so excited about when you told me you were going on this trip, and I know you've been there representing the United States many times and been involved in presidential trips, there is something that is so rare and so grand that is about to transpire. It is a royal wedding. It is the first royal wedding since, uh, at least of this caliber, since Charles and Diana. What have you found and what are you seeing there, Josh?
3: Uh,
2: Charles and Diana, 1981. I I certainly remember where I was. I was on a bus somewhere in Billings, Montana, and I landed in Heathrow the other day and drove into London, drove past Buckingham Palace, and there I saw being erected a massive media stand and enormous broadcast booths uh it's certainly on the level of a presidential inaugural and certainly bigger in many ways uh you know they're expecting 2 billion people to watch uh prince william and kate middleton's wedding uh, you know, Compare that to 200 million uh, listeners who listened to the wedding of Prince Philip and the future Queen Elizabeth back in 1947, and 750 million, the global TV audience for Charles and Diana back in 81. So this is a huge deal, and you can't walk down a street without seeing uh, – Souvenirs being sold in the windows without seeing uh, streets being blocked off for security i 'm looking today at the cover of the Guardian, and you know there 's front page coverage every day. Queen finally meets middletons as p m turns tail over suit, and on the front page of uh, of The times last minute shopping for a bride to be so this is a happy time, you know. It, it, considering that over the past few months we've had oil spills, earthquakes, tsunamis, revolutions, uh, and airstrikes, uh, this is a moment where the world's media attention is commanded at an unprecedented scale, but for something that is essentially happy and good. So it's fun to watch and it's. It's great to be here as the buzz begins to really accelerate.
1: I did a little reporting on this. I mean, obviously, we are uh, polyoptics here on POTUS, Politics of the United States, here on Sirius 110, XM 130. But really, polyoptics is an appreciation of the theater of politics, and it is uh, for sure not only going on here in the United States. And as a former U.S., uh, I should say, as a former U.S. television network television producer, Uh, I've been speaking to friends who are on the ground there preparing the network broadcast for ABC, for NBC. Everyone's going to be putting all of their main anchors into uh, London in order to capture the elements of this. This is the kind of thing that, uh, as you say, Josh, is a happy story and one for the ages yeah I mean
2: uh, five hundred people uh the 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 BBC has assigned to cover the wedding and they're the they're the host pool and so you you could explain what what that means adam but about the the perfect angles and pictures that are going to show every minute of this broadcast so for anyone who's going to get up uh very early on the East coast extremely early on the west coast and watch this they're going to be they're going see this from every conceivable angle and have a a wonderful viewing event that is really going to be seen around the world. One of
1: the things that I love about how our media has matured, some would say immatured, but this idea that it's a made-for-television event, this idea that the royal family is cognizant of the fact that billions of people all over this planet are interested and will take time out of their day to watch. Uh, And when you say it's going to be seen from every conceivable angle, well, of course that's true. And those cameras are going to be turned for the first time in a very thoughtful way on the people who are watching on the people who are in attendance. Everything's going to sort of come under scrutiny as everyone looks for a crack or some element that wasn't scripted, but if it's done right, you're going to find that you have just a very easy, flowing, grand, beautiful procession that that brings the events to culmination of the wedding. And then, as they as they take their leave, um, everyone's going to be making comments akin to uh, an Oscars runway of how everyone was dressed and and what this means and 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 how hard it was to bring all these folks together. Josh, are you going to stick around? Have you been invited to the royal wedding?
2: I do not yet have my invitation, but if you go to the official royal wedding website at officialroyalwedding2011.org, uh, they have a YouTube video that is that stands as a royal wedding invitation. And it's uh, posted by the Royal Channel, and it's very nice to watch, and it makes you feel like you're Part of the action, the whole website is quite interesting in fact it 's going to provide a live the royal channel live stream so people who are not watching the coverage from any of the major u s networks or any other location can watch online at the royal wedding website and you know it 's amazing how they 're putting up more and more content uh, about every aspect the band of the Coldstream guards set to entertain crowds along procession route. The royal wedding official photographer who's a guy named Hugo. Uh, bernand who is their official photographer so when the time comes on april 29th at westminster abbey uh every eye in the world is going to watch and you know it really is one of those iconic happenings we talked about inaugurals every four years we do have the super bowl uh every every year and we also have uh the beginnings of hostilities when everyone is focused on on when the airstrikes begin, and we unfortunately also have uh, presidential funerals that command everybody 's attention. but as we began this conversation, Adam, this is one of those moments when hearts can be light, smiles can be wide, and we can share the joy of of William and Kate as they get married
1: i 'm so glad that you 're there and have helped us sort of talk about this and and think about it for what it what it clearly will be, which is just a A global event. But of course, back here in Washington, D.C., polyoptics is in full gear because we're turning to the comedy season. Well, really, it's a it's a bunch of dinners here in Washington that the president of the United States regularly attends, perhaps the most important of which, at least the most accessible for journalists, is the White House Correspondents Association dinner. And uh, you, uh, Josh, as former production chief at the White House, spent many years preparing President Clinton for just this kind of event, and uh, it's about on us again
2: that's right we as we've talked about in previous uh, episodes of Polyoptics Adam, the State of the Union speech is an enormous event worked on for months, but they spend we spend as much time and bite as many nails and lose as much sleep on trying to do humor. Uh, as opposed to seriousness, when it comes to uh, spe- to humor season, the alfalfa dinner, the White House Correspondents' dinner, and the one of the funniest people in working in speech writing today, who you probably never heard of, is my old friend Mark Katz, who I knew for a while and then worked with every year, getting ready for funny season in Washington.
1: That's right. We are very very lucky to have Mark Katz, who is the uh, the principal at the Soundbite Institute. He is a uh, a writer and a creative consultant for many in the political world and in business. And he's also somebody who was a consultant to the Democratic National Committee and by extension, President Bill Clinton. In fact, Mark Katz, you were involved in creating some of the most humorous and effective communications for the president Uh, on some of these nights like the White House Correspondents Association dinner that's coming up that really endeared him to the press.
0: Well, thank you, Adam. If if the situation were reversed, I would lie for you.
1: (laughs) You know what? Uh, One of the things that uh, I, I always remind our audience is that, you know, earlier in my career, I was a journalist. I was working at ABC News here in Washington. And while you and Josh King were working for President Clinton and were involved in these evenings like the White House Correspondents Association dinner, Um, they were a lot of work and a lot of visual humor. You all really built a platform for the president in helping to communicate in a humorous and in visually humorous way. Uh, Mark, tell us a little bit on polyoptics of how uh, you got to be so renowned it's a fresh voice for even the president of the United States when it came to humor and politics?
0: Well, the opportunity I had was to kind of, you know, be engaged in the part of political communications that interests me the most, which is kind of using candor and humor to kind of say things that otherwise never get said. And that's what these speeches are. I mean, four times a year and really, you know, now the White House Correspondents' Dinner is is, is become a huge event um, in Washington and throughout. But it's the one night of the year, because it gets so much attention, that the president and these very powerful people are able to kind of use humor to say the things that their spokesmen deny the other 364 days of the year. And that's what's so fascinating about these dinners. You can go through these speeches and take notes on the things you just heard the President say that you've or imply or suggest or put his pinky upon that he ne- would never say the rest of the year. and And that was you know uh, the opportunity I had to kind of come down and and, and be a consultant to the, the White House and for so for eight years. I would show up four times a year. There are actually four of these speeches on the president's calendar every spring. There's the Alfalfa Dinner, the Gridiron Dinner, the Radio and Television Correspondents Dinner, which has just been renamed the Congressional Correspondents Dinner, and the White House Correspondence Dinner, which comes up next week. And like I said, they're remarkable opportunities, and they are political theater, um, so you're right, Adam, when you talk about the visual element of them, uh, because you know the visuals are an important part of the theatrical process.
1: In my experience, and I've been through this on the other side, when I was uh, working with President Bush and preparing him with uh, with elements and visual humor, did, is this how you got to know my my uh, my cohort here in Polyoptics on Sirius? Uh, Mr. Joshua King, is this how you guys crossed paths, or did you know each other even before the Clinton administration?
0: You know, it's funny. I was going to ask Josh before we went on the air. I can't remember if he worked on the Dukakis campaign, but that's where I got my start. Yeah, uh, Mark,
2: I, I think we, I think we connected uh, once in Detroit, Michigan, when you were uh, dispatched for a Dukakis <laughs> event, and I was there too. And you know, the, the only thing about Detroit, Michigan, that's, is that. Uh, it's the least funny place in the country.
0: <laughs> that sounds about right. Uh, okay, so I I I've, I've blocked out most of my Dukakis memories, and I'd forgotten that. I apologize, Josh. But you know, I, I knew Josh, and and a lot of people in the Clinton White House from from my work on the uh, on the Dukakis campaign, and and these speeches really were an opportunity to work with most everyone in the White House. I would go down there and start by talking to the press secretary, talking by the head speechwriter, talking to. The chief of staff or deputy chiefs of staff to talk just take the temperature about what was going on. I mean, each of these speeches tries to be the right comic response to their moment in time. And you really do have to understand the moment very well and understand the, the possibilities, what can be said, what can't be said, what can be implied... So I worked with, you know, uh, lots of people on, on all on all walks of life through the White House, advanced people. And, and actually, advanced people were my favorite people, um, among my favorite people, because they're these unbelievably can-do people. You know, I'm a writer. I, I look at a, a piece of paper or a, a screen and just work with nouns and verbs. I mean, these advanced people would drop into a city with 36 hours to go and just make it happen. And I always had inordinate respect for for that. And on a couple of occasions, in fact, the first time I worked with Josh in the White House, um, I had written a speech uh, for President Clinton that he was going to give at the 1995 uh, gridiron dinner. Oh, I'm sorry, alfalfa dinner. Uh, this is right after the, um, uh, he'd given a State of the Union address that went an hour and nine minutes long. And I had written a speech that the central prop of this was going to be an egg timer. And uh, to make the point that the president was going to come out and set his egg timer to five minutes and, and deliver a speech that was no longer than that. Um, and Josh, when he saw my draft, ran around... Washington D.C., looking for the most resonant, egg, you know, listening for the most resonant egg timer, the one that had just the right bell. And we had a very specific egg timer in mind. Now, the story of the egg timer is we don't have time to go into, except to say the president hated the idea. And I, uh, if uh, there, I, I wrote a book a few years back uh, called Clinton and Me, that that on the cover of of this book is me holding an egg timer uh, because it was one of the most harrowing experiences I ever had being in a holding room with the president of the United States who could not have had a a a, a worse response, a more angry response to the egg timer that I had brought into this room that Josh had run around Washington, D.C. to find. Um, but, Mark, history
2: will show that he killed with it, didn't he?
0: Well, uh, history will show on that night he did very poorly. Um, uh, and he pulled out that egg timer at the very end and got the only half laughed he got that night. It was kind of just a pity laugh. But from that moment on, uh, I think the president actually did have a turning point where it came to humor uh, because, you know, he didn't want to tell a joke at his own expense to the very people who had been uh, giving him a hard time about the length of his speech. And that was a blind spot, quite honestly, that he had when he showed up in Washington. You know, when in in Arkansas politics, uh, it's a very different culture. Humor is a stick you beat other people up with. Uh, but when he got to Washington, he had to learn the hard way, I think, that you know humor in Washington is best used when self-directed.
1: Mark Katz uh, is joining us here on Polyoptics on POTUS, Sirius 110, XM 130. Mark, I love this story because I had a very similar uh, experience at the very end of the Bush administration, sitting in a room with your counterpart, of which there are many, but a man who I have uh, great regard for. His name is Landon Parvin. I think I know you know Landon him. very
0: well. If Landon, when I got into this line of work, Landon could not have been more generous to me with regard to, you know, uh, to kind of explaining me the ropes and and, and, and just being an, uh, a person I could call just to commiserate with. So I, I have very high regard for Landon.
1: Yeah, and he is the sort of Republican Mark Katz, and he's been uh, giving counsel and writing humorous elements and trying to help navigate the the rocky shoals of washington dinners for presidents for some time but there was one joke in particular uh that we had sort of worked up and it played off the 2008 campaign this back and forth between barack obama and hillary clinton and this whole idea of who do you want answering the phone when it rings at three in the morning and the president was making a very speedy progress towards his uh daughter's wedding and he made a joke that uh that he didn't get much sleep the night prior because he'd been woken up by this phone.
3: Please excuse me if I'm a little sleepy. 3 in this morning, the red phone rang. <laughs> it's a damn wedding planner. There was a whole bunch
1: of... <laughs> Will there be a laugh here? Will there be be a, le- a laugh there? And He ultimately had to pause because... People just erupted in laughter at just the mere mention of picking up the phone. Josh King, when you knew that there were visual elements and you saw a script for Mark, uh, you guys pulled this off so well, year after year. Which stands out for you?
2: Well, the first time, Adam, that we used a visual element, we realized that we needed to uh, add more effects to the evening than just words on a page, was probably 1994 and it was the first year that i was director of production of the white house and what and what had just come out was a time magazine cover that showed the incredible shrinking president and uh it showed george stephanopoulos in the background you may remember that and we decided to again as mark says showing that knowing understanding of of your of your weakness and sort of leaning into it we decided to make a series of about a dozen time magazine covers uh it was the age before photoshop mm-hmm. so uh it was very h- tough to do but we created a
1: uh, we we what, did them on a was, cave
0: wall, I think, if I remember correctly. <laughs> That's, That's
2: right.
1: <laughs> a cave wall. That's what you guys were doing.
2: And, uh, and you know, to, to this day, it would be a wonderful addition to the Clinton Library because it sh- he, he said, well, time decided not to use this cover, and it showed him with actual horns coming out of his head. And it showed him in, <laughs> in right. boxer shorts, and it, it showed him in all these unflattering positions. And so, uh, you know, it, again, it showed what you need to do for these events, which is understand your Achilles heel and sort of lean into it and, and, and show humor at your own expense. Hey, Mark,
1: the... will you talk us through, there's one, this is the, uh, the third way uh, hmm. element, which I believe you all did for the White House Correspondents Association dinner in 1995.
4: I don't know how many of you know that I've been eating off these things for years. I never knew they were called sporks. <laughs> but that's what they are. This is the symbol of my administration. <laughs> This is a cross between a spoon and a fork. No more false choice between the left utensil and the right utensil. (laughs) This is not an ideological choice. This is a choice in the middle and a choice for the future. This is a big
0: new idea, the spork.
1: I love that. I love that. Now, Whose idea was that, Marquette?
0: Well, the important thing is that it worked. Uh, the it, it's actually the backstory is very interesting because we're we're um, at a moment right now that that you know parallels it perfectly. You know the 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 showdown between the White House and the Congress and and uh, a shutdown of government and 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 kind of these wars that we're at. I mean, at this moment, the president was trying to kind of demonstrate that he he wanted. To be this is the beginning of the triangulation, you know the, the Dick Morris uh, strategy where he was going to present the third way and and the spork you know kind of jumped out at me as kind of a way to kind of you know embody this thing and we wrote this uh, bit you know, that we had the president pulling a spork out of his pocket and Josh, you may remember, ran around Washington DC that day looking for a spork. and found do you remember where you found it because I do.
2: I refresh my memory, Mark, because sporks are hard to find these days.
0: Well, you found it at a Wendy's. (laughs) I know this because I mentioned to the president in the meeting it came from a Wendy's, and I said they they serve it with their chili. And the president wanted to know, and I'm not making this up, he wanted to know if the chili was good at Wendy's. Because he'd been on his heart-healthy diet for so long at the White House that I could see him, you know, pining for the days when he was able to go into a McDonald's or a Wendy's and eat this stuff before Jay Leno made fun of him. So we, before we this meeting started, we started talking about the chili at Wendy's. That's how I know where we got to <laughs> I'm laughing. From.
1: I just can't stop because, first of all, it goes back to what you said at the beginning, Mark. This idea, especially in politics, where the self-effacing humor, the things that can't be said the other 364 days of the year, are perfectly appropriate. And, you know, as a former governor of Arkansas, somebody who had a very everyman quality, he was somebody that people could believe in, but also somebody that people felt like they knew that he was a genuine uh, fellow. I mean, he was obviously superior intellect, but you know, he was from Arkansas. And so he was at home in situations that people might think, well, that's maybe a little you know, down home or uh, spork might be something that that Hicks use in a pejorative way. But for Bill Clinton, it's just absolutely, of course, I'm no I'm no stranger to the spork.
0: He, he, it was like watching a tearful reunion when he held that spork.
2: <laughs> Mark, uh, another question for you. You know, this is humor season, as you said, with the alfalfa, the gridiron, uh, the radio TV Correspondence Center, and now the White House Correspondence Center. Obviously, when you are seen as the coordinator and writer of these speeches, as, a, as almost the artist and the crafter of these speeches, everyone has a voice in the process, and at the end of the day, the chief client, the president, has to deliver these lines and execute what you do. Can you t- walk us through the process of actually keeping integrity in the product that so many people want to weigh in
0: on that's a very good question josh um you you figure out earl you know the problem with doing humor in this kind of environment is that there are approximately a hundred people in the building who can kill a joke and about four people in the building who can write a joke um, and it was, I would have to go and find these four or eight or 10, but there were a select few people who, um, whose sense of humor I could rely upon. And again, I call this process the comedy war room. I, you know, I absolutely did not write these speeches in a room by myself, but worked with not only people in the White House, but was on the phone with a lot of people from Hollywood and and people who were eager to help the president. So it was absolutely a group effort. Um, but it, is, it was tricky to kind of get stuff through and keep stuff in intact, uh, and, uh, you know, I would watch jokes die, and, and, and I would always remember, I would take great pleasure uh, in when, you, when you'd first start these meetings and someone would say, this is something we can't joke about, whatever it was. Uh, I'll give you a remember the year, coffee. We couldn't even say the word coffee because of the coffees the president was hosting that was a code word for fundraiser. And when I heard... Someone say, we can't talk about it. My mind immediately, I'm just hardwired to think this way. We mu- I immediately think we must find a way to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Whether it is putting a pinky on it, just whatever it is, I can't stand the idea that there is a topic we can't talk about or touch or reference. So that was really the conflict. Uh, and and the, the greatest accomplishments, you know, these speeches ever had was getting into the speech a topic a taboo topic that was off the table when the process began because if you try hard enough and you push hard enough and you know I, I you know I, I I'm pushy um, you can you can you know make the case and let and let the joke kind of be self-evident reason why uh, how could this joke possibly hurt us I mean think about you know the, the using humor in political dialogue is you got to figure out that things are only as bad as the stuff you can't joke about. So the more you can find a way to joke about it, the fewer things that are bad.
1: I, I particularly embrace uh, that philosophy that, that you hold, and, and I am not um, a speechwriter. I am not a humorist, according to my wife. Um, but, but I am a strategist, and I love to leverage the visual elements of political communication. But, Mark, there is such a winning uh, element to humor delivered well, and um, it's funny also to think about the things that people say we can't joke about, and yet when we look back, pa- when we look back over some of the things that have transpired since the Clinton administration, I, I specifically think of President Bush and the uh, White House Correspondents' joke about looking for weapons of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. That joke killed in the room. It was hilarious, and yet it was so inappropriate. And it was felt by everybody in the room, and I'm taking great latitude to speak for everybody in the room. But mm-hmm. uh, it was, it's, Josh, I think you'll agree, you look back at it and you think, whoa, you know, that, that got some laughs, but it really wasn't good. Uh, but at the same time, you guys have done some stuff that have gotten some laughs that was really good, that upon reflection seemed almost brilliant.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, what's, what's interesting is what I noticed... Every year in succession, as Mark uh, and others got deeper and deeper involved in it, is th- there was a great struggle to top last year's effort. You couldn't rest on your laurels, you had to do something bigger and better. And that sometimes led to risky comments, like you just talked about, Adam. But it also led to some really creative uh, work, and almost got Mark into the filmmaking industry. And, and Mark, you could relay the, the how the White House Correspondents' Dinner speech actually became a movie in the final year of Clinton's presidency.
0: Yeah, that was that was our biggest. That we, you know the the president. Uh, went to all eight years of the White House Correspondence Center, which it was no small accomplishment when you consider that each of the eight years, each spring kind of, you know, seemed to correspond to a moment in crisis. And I really felt strongly that we we should do something really big at the back end to celebrate the presidency um, but re- and really celebrate, you know, his triumph over adversity <laughs> in a lot of ways. I mean, it was a fascinating a presidency and and he overcame a lot, and we all know all the stories. Um, but I, I wanted to, you know, and and there was a general con- agreement that we should do something big. and and we pitched an idea uh, for a a kind of a humor video. Uh, that was kind of his his commencement address at at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Um, I had uh, worked very closely that year. Uh, in the last few years, I was in the White House. There was another very talented speechwriter by the name of Jeff Shessel, and Jeff and I worked very closely on these speeches, uh, kind of as a Lennon McCartney team, and and uh, we were thinking about an idea for a. Um, a funny video and I placed a phone call to uh, uh, the older brother of my best friend from high school uh, a guy named Phil Rosenthal who created a show called everybody loves Raymond if you ever heard of it and I grew up in their living room I, mean, I, I was you know I Phil was a couple years old than I did I was and and we started talking to him about this idea that we had and he had for every inkling of an idea he we had you know he had another great idea and soon enough we had a script and and this idea how uh basically you know in the spring of 2000 al gore was running for president uh the first lady was running for senate in new york um and everyone had moved on to the tw- 2000 election and had forgotten all about the president and we wanted to kind of do this home alone video uh, called the final days where the president was all but ignored you know in, in the white house all by himself with all you know with nothing to do to occupy his time. And we put together, you know a, a script and showed it to the press secretary and, and got it all approved. And it's funny because we wrote all these cameos in for all these different people. And some people, you know, they don't, no one wants to be in kind of n- another lame video. So we got some no's, we got some yeses. but as the video started getting momentum and getting good buzz and we're getting, people were actually now lobbying to get cameos into this thing by the time we were done. Um, and if you go online, if you Google Clinton final days, uh, you'll see this video uh, that, that went viral um, before viral was a term that. Kind of meant anything in 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 marketing, uh, but it was everywhere. It was a big thrill. It was a big you know thrill for the president uh, to kind of you know go out on this at this White House correspondent with such a big bang, uh, and and people remembering fondly and strongly the strengths he brought to his presidency and to you know and humor uh, and 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 you know self effacement. Uh, I, I want to
1: jump this. in and just say that. As a journalist who was sitting in the room and watching this movie, the production values were high. Kevin Spacey was one of the notable right. um, uh, sort of cameos in the film. And the pre- when I say the production values were high, I mean at some point you have to understand they had video of the president walking around an empty press room. They had. Video of president on a tricycle, I mean a lot a tricycle, of. Sil- but yes,
0: it was a bicycle. It was riding a bicycle. The OEOB.
1: Okay, I, in my mind, it did morphed morph to a tricycle, <laughs> which makes it even funnier for me. But uh, it, in all honesty, uh, it it set such an enormously high bar, and uh, for the people who covered the president for two full terms, it was a a very appropriate. And very well-done farewell to a commitment that he made to be there one-on-one with the journalists that covered him for eight years. And that's really where we are again this April as President Obama takes that on. Um, we don't have too much more time here in polyoptics, uh, Mark Katz, but I, I do want to thank you for for being with us and helping us sort of remember and perhaps also elevate the need for humorous communication in politics and how a president can really achieve and find uh, common ground with people who are often his detractors if it's done well.
0: Um, Well, you know, just one last point, really, which is, you know, uh, in the the realm of political communications, I think humor is the anti-spin. I think, you know, spin is, you know, when someone says something that that implicitly says, I think you're just dumb enough to believe this. But humor is saying, I think you're smart enough to understand what I'm really saying here. And it, it appeals to a whole different part of your brain. Um, and, and you know, once you're in on the laugh, uh, once once someone has the intellectual and emotional honesty to say something that he himself is not afraid of, you, you view whatever that topic is differently. And I think that's the real power of humor in the political arena, which is the kind of the power to put cracks in otherwise hardened opinions.
1: Well, you can find him uh, on the internet. The Soundbite Institute, it's a creative think tank. It is uh, one of uh, the places that people who are in politics, who are looking to continue their ascendancy and uh, and find new and improved ways to communicate and to handle difficult uh, Elements will seek out Mark Katz, and of course, you can find Clinton and me on Amazon. Uh, We we are very lucky to have had you here today. Uh, Mark Katz, thank you for being with us on PolyOptics.
0: It was my pleasure.
1: joined now by Dory Thornton, who is uh, a good friend of mine, a woman who held the office of Deputy Social Secretary, one of the youngest women ever to hold that post. She worked with me in the Bush White House. Dory, welcome to Polyoptics.
3: Thank you, Adam. I'm happy to be here.
1: Josh, we have spent a lot of time in the White House working with the social office. I think it is one of the least understood and most important elements in the White House. Uh, everybody comes to understand what's going on based on the interface that the social office provides. That's right, Adam. The rest of the world
4: thinks of the White House as a monolithic place, but it's really divided into so many different areas. There's the West Wing where the president works. There's the press room where the White House press corps sits. There's the old executive office building where so many staff work. And then there's the executive mansion, the actual uh, 1802 structure that John Adams first occupied and the 18 acres of the White House grounds. And that is the province of the White House Social Secretary. And in my years working in the White House, nothing happened that was relevant to the rest of the world without intimate coordination and
1: cooperation with the Social Secretary's office. Dory, do we have it right? Is this, are we building you up too much? I mean, (laughs) you occupy such an important and unique space in the White House.
3: Right. Well, you're giving us an awful lot of credit. But I I do think there is a lot of truth to that because every event that happens at the White House um, does involve the social office, whether it be for two people or for 2,000. Um, So I think that's a a great um, understanding of of the connection of the social office and how they connect to other offices. And Adam, we worked hand in hand, um, you on the communication side of things, and we always saw ourselves as representative of how the guests feel and how the President and Mrs. Bush would want the guests to feel. So I think you've, I think you've got it right, but you're giving us an awful lot of credit there.
1: You know, we are talking about this issue because it's back in the news. Uh, the Obama administration has now had, they're going on their third social secretary. Uh, the latest is an appointment. That is very rare indeed. Uh, we have a man for the very first time, Dori, occupying the role of social secretary. What do you think about that?
3: I was I was surprised, but I I don't think the gender um, makes any difference. Honestly, I think you have to have incredible taste. Um, you have to be a confidant of the president and the first lady. And you have to be able to pay attention to details, and um, you know I think that the president and first lady have found that, and hopefully found that uh, for a, for a final time in this third candidate for social secretary, um, because I do think that it's important to have consistency in that role, and that you work with so many different entities of the White House, and so many of them that are. That don't change. The usher's office, the resident staff, I mean, the same people have been there for up to 40 years. So the social office is the one office that does change. And I do think it's important to have consistency. And that's probably what they need here um, going into the last two years of the first term.
1: Josh, how surprised were you? I mean, to add some more context to this. Jeremy Bernard uh, is not only the first man, he is an openly gay man uh, and he holds this position now. It's a great position of trust. Were you shocked by this appointment? Not really, Adam. I, I, I think the Obamas
4: are great at being first at a lot of things. And Desiree Rogers was the first African-American social secretary Juliana Smoot stepped in, one of the Obama's uh, confidants, as as Dory said, one of the Obama's uh, most reliable fundraisers and a person who could step in and do that job from her prior position as chief of staff to the U.S. trade representative. And then Jeremy Bernard, again, long connection to the Obamas, all of the qualifications that Dory talked about. And the Obamas are keen to, to... break down barriers and frankly if uh, jeremy didn't take the job i would have stepped up and done it in a second it's a great job
1: (laughs) i'll tell you one of the things that uh, i love about this discussion and where we're about to go is this idea and i want everybody who's listening to us on polyoptics here on potus sirius xm uh radio to know that if your job is done well you are not well seen, you are behind uh, the curtain, so to speak, and everyone feels uh, so welcome within the four walls of the White House story. But when things go wrong, and we've seen some examples in this administration of some events going horribly wrong, uh, especially the very first state dinner that the uh, Obamas held, uh, where Desiree Rogers uh, came to the uh, uh, Salahi invasion, the the party crashers that were. What was your take on that? And take us behind the scenes of a state dinner. There's so much beyond the guests uh, to explore and to deal with, including the protocol of hosting a foreign leader.
3: Absolutely. Wow. A state dinner is such a incredible, exciting, but also nerve wracking experience because the arrival of the of the head of state is, is timed um, impeccably to the second they hit the doors and you want all the guests to be in and enjoying themselves with a cocktail and, and your guests are, are not just um, your neighbors. They are usually um, the upper echelon of um, DC society and in worldwide. Um, so I think that it's a very nerve wracking time, but when I heard this when I heard this story I cringed and I felt for them because I, I can't I cannot imagine having that have happened on, on my watch um, and how how I would have felt. We worked so closely with the Secret Service and with all the all the offices that you mentioned earlier, Adam, with the resident staff and communications and so forth. And the Secret Service, we were really a team. So we really, you know, we had a representative down at the gate that said, this person can come in. This person can't, and you know, Secret Service would clear people um, after we had given the okay. When I heard when I heard this happen to them, I thought, okay, here's where the breakdown was, and that was at the beginning. And I think just a with the Secret Service and the Social Office, and mistakes happen. That's not to say mistakes didn't happen on on our watch, but there was somehow a breakdown in communication. Well, there, I think the breakdown, Josh,
1: was that uh, the White House so- Social Secretary thought she was one of the guests well
4: every White House event in the executive mansion and on the grounds there are probably a dozen mistakes every day made and most of them are I- are invisible and I know how hard it is uh, to monitor a gate with 400 guests coming through and the social secretary herself or himself now in this case can't be in every place at every time And it's a matter of list coordination and planning. And, you know, when there is a very visible snafu, as there was in this case, someone does have to step up and be accountable, and Desiree was accountable in this case.
1: Well, but Dory, in the end, uh, staffing these gates, but being a part at a very granular level of uh, the most important element of getting everybody in and making sure that those who are invited uh, are uh, given the proper uh welcome and 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 made to be a part of the group and uh their guests of the president of the united states and the first lady uh this requires the social office to work hand in in hand with the secret service i think that probably was one of the things that broke down whether it was the social secretary or any one of of her deputies of which you would have been one uh in the bush administration that was, I think, where it actually broke down. What did right. you do in those situations?
3: Sure. Well, so much effort goes into the guest list prior to um, prior to a dinner like that, and there's a lot of double check- checking and triple checking. I can say that we we often made made mistakes. However, we made mistakes on on the opposite side in the sense that we would have a guest um, that may not have been on for whatever reason, may not have been on the guest list that the Secret Service had and hadn't been cleared in, and then they would have to wait for a long period of time to be cleared in Um and and that happened from time to time, whether somebody decided at the last minute they didn't they broke up with their boyfriend and they wanted to bring a new guest. Um and maybe that they are best friends of the president and Mrs. Bush, usually they usually seem to be. Um, and we would try to correct that as, as promptly as possible. To my knowledge, we never had the problem with letting anybody in that wasn't supposed to, because that's such a stringent process and um in our office, we had a staffer. There was the invitations assistant in our office that would be at the gate for every time the gate was open, sitting there with the Secret Service officer, watching people check their IDs, and then checking the guest list upon that. So I, Adam, I would agree that that's where the breakdown was. I don't believe that there, and I, I think that if I'm right, the Obama administration has acknowledged that there was not a person down there at the gate. Um, so that that's how that happens. And but mistake mistakes are made. And, you know, I, I understand that. And it's an incredibly a state dinner is an incredibly um, high stress event. There's so much going into it from the entertainment to the flowers, to the menus and the timing. Um Adam, as you know, with President Bush, he was always incredibly early. This man, which... <laughs> Josh,
1: he he wasn't late anywhere. He was a good five to ten minutes early. If you told the press we were going to have a press conference at a certain time, you could be sure the boss was ready to walk out. He was itching to go.
4: That's what's so amazing about the social office and the executive mansion itself, because morning, noon, afternoon, and night, the place is like a stage set with four different productions that could happen in the morning. It could be a national prayer breakfast at noon. It could be a press conference with a foreign leader in the afternoon. Maybe the Super Bowl or the Stanley Cup winning team comes in to visit. And in the evening, it's jazz or blues or the Kennedy Center honors. So I always feel for people like Dory who are are basically putting on four different Broadway shows in a single day.
1: Dory, you used to get to work at the most ungodly of hours, and by by every estimation, you were one of the very last people to leave the White House on a daily basis. If a state dinner is one of the grandest and most rare events in the White House, take us through some of these things that Josh just described, and can you share any sort of stories about what it was like on a daily basis to facilitate uh, the hospitality of the First Lady of the United States?
3: Of course. Um, well, it, it was an honor. Um, at meet, I did work a lot of long hours, but it was such a privilege to um, work at the White House and for the president, Mrs. Bush. So I really, I enjoyed all of it. I can't say every single second of it. Um, it was tiresome, but it was very, um, it was an incredible experience. We we did have, um, you know, all of the, the state dinners and, and those events, but I really preferred the smaller events and the more intimate ones, Um at a very small birthday party for Barney that I think will go down as, as one of my favorite events. And Adam, I think you were there. And one of my interns at, at the time was, um, I had asked her, we used these, we actually used the um, tables from my, I teach. I, I taught a Sunday school class across the street and we used the tables because we wanted little kids. That's right. So that
1: oh, that's right. The small can... <laughs> tables that the kids could do a lot of their drawings on.
3: Right. So we brought those in from the church across the street and they could make cookies and do drawings. And I wanted the tablecloths to lay a particular way. And the sweet butlers had never worked with these, you know, tablecloths that you can draw on and stuff before. And so they put it on kind of all wrong. So I am in my suit underneath these little kid tables in the East Garden. Um, and my intern looks at me and she's like, what are you doing down there? I'm like, oh, I just want it to be right. And she's like, well, why are you crawling underneath and sometimes you just have to do it yourself <laughs> if you want it done. But I think that I tell that story to my interns now in my business because I think they thought it was all such a glamorous experience and so much of it was and, and wonderful. But it was a lot of hard work and, you know, there's a lot of details that go into event planning that, that are not um, that are not all glamour and it, it's a lot of nitty gritty to and some, just getting, you know, laying underneath that table and putting the, putting the tablecloth on the, ju- the way just you want it.
1: Hey, Josh, I want to ask you if you remember this, I, I want Dory to, to speak about it. It was one of these things that was one of the most embarrassing, uh, social elements, uh, during the Bush administration. And it was when, uh, the queen of England, uh, came and we had this wonderful reception, uh, and it was it was an element uh, of not really understanding her dominion of stature, Dory. Do you remember this?
3: Oh well, and I actually that was my first day on the job, and I was shadowing <laughs> my predecessor, Missy DeCamp, who was the um, deputy social secretary. So, I I'm, I don't have a lot to add about that particular experience, other than. I just remember walking around and everybody following Missy, and everybody was asking Missy questions, and she always knew the answer. And I remember looking at, um, at a fellow coworker and saying, "I'm never going to know all these answers." I was um, just in, amazed by what went in, and to for a dinner for the Queen, that was two years of preparation, um, and you know every detail had to be. Had to be tended to. So, Adam, I'll let you talk about that a little bit more from a communications angle.
4: Go ahead, Josh. No, I'd just be interested in in uh, in se- in moving from those moments, and I, I think it's not an it's not a uh, irregular situation where Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth is dwarfed by microphones. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but but I point well know, taken. One of the thing one of the first social memories I have of the White House. Uh, came, I think, uh, June 12th, 1971, if I'm right. It was about six years old, and I remember the first White House wedding that I paid attention to. It was when Tricia Nixon married Ed Cox in the Rose Garden uh, with proud parents uh, Richard and Pat Nixon looking on. And you had the opportunity, I think, uh, to participate in Jenna Bush's wedding, in 2007, what was that like?
3: Well, Jenna um, Jenna actually got married at the ranch in Crawford, as, as I'm sure you're aware. And we we really did an after-the-wedding reception for Jenna at the White House. So we did not um, plan the Crawford wedding, and Mrs. the president and Mrs. Bush made sure that that was a very intimate affair, that was really just for Jenna and Henry and and their friends. And so after the wedding about five or five or six weeks um, later, we hosted a reception at the White House um, that was much like Jenna's wedding, but a little bit um, wider guest list and we invited a lot of the President and Mrs. Bush's friends as well as Jenna and Henry's and um, that 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 was one of those events that I will never forget. I adore Jenna. I think I, one of her biggest fans on um, the Today Show these days and we really had a lot of fun, although it was a very stressful time just because weddings always bring in a certain amount of emotion and, and that's actually what I do now full time. So there's there's always an extra element of emotion that we weren't really accustomed to working with when you are dealing with state dinners, there's there's not a ton of emotion there. it's it's very um it's very much a business, I, I guess you could say. Um, so with Jenna, we were worried about is it exactly the right cake? Was she gonna wear her dress and was she gonna come down in her dress and 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 so forth? And those were all very um very personal decisions. And I think one of the things that Mrs. Bush probably cared about the most of all of her events that she did at the White House. Um, I think that was probably the one that she'll remember the most because it was for her daughter, um, and they did so many wonderful events. Jenna was such a um, – she actually hosted a, a poetry, poetry reading for um, a child that she had met that had been – I believe they had cancer and some wonderful things, but I think that Mrs. Bush would probably say that was probably one of one of her favorite um, favorite events we did there for Jenna and Henry to celebrate their marriage.
4: Moving to a, an event of incredibly high emotion and something that I always thought the Bush White House, first of all, they originated and then they perfected it. And I thought it was such a wonderful use of the grounds, uh, the regular White House t-ball games. And by the time I think you probably came into the White House, they probably had had the system down pat. But curious about what you thought, on the one hand, planning things like wedding related events and state dinners, and on the other hand, being a impresario of baseball games.
3: Absolutely. Well, and that all um, is came out of Adam's office. Um, Stephen Levine did an excellent job in, in taking T-Ball and kind of bringing it to a new level and adding a whole entertainment um, component that we hadn't really had before. And we you had- are so
1: modest though. I mean, it's true, Josh, that, that, uh, the commissioner of T-ball, uh, was a young man named Stephen Levine who worked for me, but, uh, Dory was such an important part. And so was the social office of helping to craft this. And it was sort of, uh, typical of the way that uh, a lot of these offices work so closely together she had such remarkable expertise and how to execute these things and how to bring people together into uh, anticipate what the needs of certain groups would be, and how to uh, bring it all together in a graceful way on the grounds, and bring the right elements of the staff. Dory, uh, I remember some of the innovations that you did, uh, like bringing some of the, uh, the the special elements of of music in some cases, and a lot of TV stars and elements to help bring up the profile. Uh, you you all played a really big part in that.
3: We did, and. It was we did but hand in hand with um so many other offices at the white house but it was one of our favorite events it was an all-day thing i remember um i mean those were early mornings getting there 5 a.m. going to check the field with with Stephen and and then you know the end of the day is, is when it winds all up and you're chasing around four-year-olds. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes you now, are. Like, they could they follow the plan to say the least. Um, my favorite one I think was the one where Kenny Chesney came um, came up and I think I still remember the date it was July 16th. It's funny how these particular dates pop in your mind and you'll never forget them but Kenny Chesney came up and um, sang the, I believe, the national anthem to open to open the game, and then he actually stayed, and we had a big dinner that evening. Um, and it that one was probably the most fun, but the hardest because you had a huge day where you have these these teams that come in, and they are all basically from either children with disabilities or children from. Um, underprivileged areas, or in some of them are, you know, of course, um, people that lead perfectly normal lives. But it was a wonderful experience. We I remember getting I think we had 40, 40, and six year olds there and we had to get them all to pose in a picture with Kenny Chesney and all the base coaches and the president and Mrs. Bush. I mean, that was one of I think that's one of the hardest things I had to do is clapping my hands and, you know, making all kinds of funny faces and trying to get all these four five and six year olds to pose and not move around. Um, right there in front of the White House. I still have the picture. It kind of haunts me, I say, because I I think of that. As far as some of my favorites, I think one of my favorites was probably the Olympian event we did in 2008 when the— the Summer Olympic team from from China came. I'm to the shaking White House. my
1: hand right now because I <laughs> love that event, and I just I, it's one of those days that I also remember so well.
3: Uh, well, I remember it kind of with good and bad. Um, we had one of our key Olympians was was very late, and we had 600 people hoisted on this um, platform in front of the white house there were just different levels of scaffolding um and everyone's standing there and this key olympian had not yet arrived um that was one of the more um painful and i think stephen levine adam was sitting there with the president no sir not here yet
1: and i remember (laughs) we were we we we, uh if you want to chase this down everybody who's listening to us on polyoptics uh sirius 110 X and 130 we uh, we we uh, did some tapings with some of these uh, late to arrive Olympians for uh, Barney Cam 2008. So we won't yeah. we'll drop their names here, but you can uh, you can see them in that video and know who they are. Hey Dory, I, I want to thank you for coming in. You know, uh, you are today uh, an entrepreneur. You are uh, the founder and president of a small business down there in Nashville, Tennessee, the Social Office. Uh, creating unique and really exquisite events for uh, brides and for very important events for families and businesses. And I know that what you learned in the White House has primed you to do this with uh, your typical dignity and grace. And uh, I'm really excited we were able to talk to you today.
3: Absolutely, thank you very much, both Adam and Josh for having me on, I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for joining us here on Polyoptics and give our thanks to Catherine Capenden, who's our producer here in Washington. Uh, We will be back with you next week here on POTUS, Politics of the United States.